In today's market, it is critical that your products not just be good, but they need to be great in order to stand out in a crowded field and be successful. That success will most likely be directly related to a well-thought-out and executed user experience strategy and design. We are going to talk about user experience strategies that will make your products stand out and be successful on this Screenbox podcast. Please like our podcast and subscribe to our channel to get notified when next month's podcast is released. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Streaming box technology and business rundown. Standing out in a crowd can make you millions. Developing a new idea? How can you ensure successful product differentiation? User experience, also known as UX, is probably not what you think it is. Welcome to the Screenbox Technology and Business Rundown Podcast. In this podcast, my co-host, Botan Sedesh, and I, Dave Erickson, are going to chat about UX and product success with Ken Lanier, UX award winner and UX consultant. Ken is a true product geek, part innovator, part product manager, and part UX designer. He is an entrepreneur and UX award winner and coined the acronym HUI for Human User Interface, which are technologies that make digital UIs more human-like. These days, Ken's focus is primarily on user-facing AI, such as intelligent assistants, chatbots, conversational intelligence, and their underlying technologies. Today, we're going to chat about how to make products stand out and be successful by focusing on what makes your product great, which is your customer's experience with it. As a bonus, we're also going to chat about integrating ChatGPT and other chatbots into the UX process and product designs, which we feel is going to be the key to building successful digital products going forward. So Ken, did uh, I miss anything or is there anything you want to add to the intro? No, I think you got it covered. Thank you. All right. So, Ken, you being an expert in UX, uh, we were wondering what are some of the key considerations for defining a really solid and effective UX strategy for digital product development? I look at it very simply. The, the very first thing is approach or mindset. So it's, it's very easy to come up with product ideas and you think to yourself, oh, this is great. Let's go build this but you don't really know for sure if the user sees things from your perspective. So it's the very simple thing that UX is based on is user-centered design. What does the user really value benefit from more than the, the, uh, the old saying, I have a hammer and everything I see is a nail kind of thing. Well, maybe they see a screw, maybe they see a staple or whatever it is. So I, I can't necessarily use my thinking, my tool, so it's the whole user-centered design approach, which starts with some research of the users, the market, uh, competitors, products that you have, and where they do or do not fit. So very simple approach is the best starting point. Uh, we feel that UX is really critical to the success of a product. And that UX process when I start talking about it to potential clients and, and uh, customers, 
they sometimes ask, why is it necessary? So maybe we can kind of talk a little bit. What are the, the, the higher level basic steps of developing uh, a really quality UX that allows you to give something to the developers so they can start developing? Uh, and, and in that summary of what is UX or the, the, the steps of UX, maybe we can talk a little bit about what differentiates or, or what makes a good UX process versus one that is not complete or not very good. Yeah. So before we jump into that, I'll point out, I totally agree with you. I have this thing called the UX profitability continuum, which is a theorem I put together that it, it can be found on my website. There's a little graphic there it shows that UX is what drives profit. So when you talk about the why from the business perspective, just about every business I know is in business to make money, and this is truly the way you're going to do it. But if you talk to accounting, they're going to say, no, we're the ones that make money and the salespeople. And of course, everyone works together. But the, the thing people buy is user experience or the experience they get. The thing they, when it's a, a personal item, the thing they brag to their friends about, about a product or service, it's the experience. When it's for business, it's the, the value of that user experience. So. That's the why part. The how, uh, there's a lot of steps and it's done differently. The, the first thing, again, is to start with knowing who your customer is that you're targeting. So you can do general research on that, then start talking to those customers or potential customers. So interviews, the simplest thing. Asking the right questions, that's there's probably thousands of articles on how to do that. I think it's a little bit more art than science. So I think it, it's a learned thing. It's always asking open-ended questions so that they are doing more talking than, than you are to, to kind of get that feedback, challenge some of the things they say. So people will say, oh, I need this. But in reality, I'm exaggerating here, they need this. Uh, it, you really have to flesh that out because if you don't do the interviews properly or, or get the feedback properly, you're going to build something and it's still going to miss the mark. From there, I, I would develop a persona around the, the people, possibly even the persona first and, and vet that out. So you could go either way on that. Depends on where you are in the market. So, so now we have some feedback. We're defining who the feedback is from. Uh, start to look at, again, as I was saying, what's in the marketplace? What do they have now? It should be part of the, the, the questioning. What are you using now? Are you using our product? What do you like? What don't you like? What, what's the dream feature we don't have? So it's trying to elicit those kinds of things. Or if this is a completely new idea, it's something that never existed. Will it really help them? Try and elicit that. Is there really a market for this? Again, I'm sure I come up with a couple ideas every day. And most of it is not worth pursuing for any number of these reasons. But if you really feel it's vetted, then it's starting to get into some uh, wireframing, some basic design of what this might be. It could be low fidelity wireframing. Now I just got rid of my Sharpies, but Sharpie on paper is enough to kind of get the ideas, do a sketch, pencil and paper. Don't have to use all these design tools. It's a low fidelity sketch. If you have good designers and start vetting this through, it goes into the real design. Back to your, your users or your prospective users to see if this feels like it's the right thing. And then you can go into more of the development process. I don't want to take up too much time on that, but 
to me, it's a very linear process in just covering the uh, these bases. I'm, I'm sure there's all kinds of acronyms, techniques. I try and keep it simple. But the, the one thing I'll say is once you get to prototyping, you also want to get feedback. So if, if you have trusted potential users, that if you have something proprietary, they'll, they'll NDA and keep it quiet and do different types of testing. I do things like uh, card sorting, uh, tree testing, which I won't explain what they are, but those are things I use. The other thing, uh, just going back to the interview part, I guess I left out, I try and do contextual observation, which is just being in the context of the user. If it's something they, they have, competitor software or our software or our hardware, basically looking over their shoulder, just observing and asking questions. Well, why did you do that? Why do you prefer that method or the other? So it's part of the research process. It seems like depending, you know, if if you're doing a, a, a greenfield product development where somebody said, hey, I woke up, here's my product idea, let's make it. And they have nothing else, right? That's one kind of UX process. Another type of UX process is they currently have a product. It's not functioning very well. Uh, they want to make a new one. It seems to me that the second one where they already kind of have something or they're using something from a UX perspective is actually, in a sense, easier for this interview process because then you know who, you know, how do you like what you're currently using? What don't you like about it? you know, what, if you could do anything, what would you wish happens, right? So that's easier to work with in that sense, I think. The green field, that's a really different ball of wax. And it seems like that would be much harder to start a UX process in. Is that correct? Am I looking at that correctly? I don't want to say correct or incorrect. I, I would just say they are not as dissimilar as that because, yeah, it's harder if, if you could show them the thing and say, so. What do you think of this? How do you use this? It's definitely easier than saying, imagine something because people don't imagine the same. So again, if it's not so proprietary, you can't share some sketches or things. Yeah, it's, it's definitely harder. I think in the end, it's the same process. But if you have this, this is a blue pen, you want to switch to red, it's going to be a lot easier to say, so do you have use for red ink? And they're going to relate much better. So it's it's definitely easier but it's relatively the same process. One of the things I find most fun about UX strategy is a lot of the smoke and mirrors that go into things at times. Like some of my favorite examples is the like button on Facebook. It takes exactly as long to animate itself as long as the average request or that most of the loading bars are 100% fake and they just again take the average time and they, they stop at like 80% mm. <laughs> so I'm wondering if uh, you can open our eyes up to some some more fun examples of spoken mirrors that maybe we don't even consider or, or even notice I mean the idea of that is to pacify the wait time people hate to wait so by giving something it's making the person feel that, oh, this thing is responding to me. I have, I'm updating my website and it has a loader because it's bogged down. It's an animated GIF. It's not saying, oh, you're 20%, 40, 60, 80. 
at least says something that the server's not frozen in those moments that it's pulling in a lot of uh, large images or things. But I don't have a good answer for you, but because I, I don't know of good examples of smoke and mirrors that I can think of, but yeah, they exist. It, it, again, it's the pacification, if that's a good word to use, but it's a great point you make. Uh, I can give you an example, trying to keep it short. I worked for a very large bank. I was product manager on their AI team. And what I ultimately was responsible for is that the chat bot would be the first initiation of a, a conversation or dialogue. At some point, it can't do everything. We pass that to a human agent. And the, the gap between those two is, is the uh, queue where someone gets transferred to. And the queue was being managed uh, through uh, third-party software that the third party uh, provided. And it was missing some key things, one of which was uh, like a wait time indicator queue messaging. So if you got chatbot said, oh, I can't help you with that. I'll transfer you to an agent. Okay, that sounds reasonable. Is that a minute away? Is that 20 minutes away? If it's 4.59 in the afternoon and the agents go home at 5, the way that queue was by default, it, uh, it would pop you in a queue and you'd be waiting till 9 a.m. if you stayed there. So, so addressing those things psychologically is absolutely imperative. So that messaging, telling someone you had I can transfer you to the queue, but uh, agents won't be available till tomorrow morning. Would you like to leave a, a callback number or text or, or whatever? So those are typical pieces where UX falls apart. Let's say there's an easy side of the easy planning, like you know, make the button this big, make it visible. It's all the edge cases. That is the destroyer of UX. And that's where the frustration comes in. And the other thing I'll say, so the goal of UX is to be delightful. Frustration is the opposite. So the most used word people talk about in the UX field is delight. Being popped in a queue and maybe it's only a 20 second wait, but in that scenario, the way it was first presented to us, no one would have known that. And probably someone will wait 20 seconds, but then what well, do I wait 30 seconds, two minutes? So those little, I don't know if we call them loopholes or un- unconsidered aspects that we were handed had to have been addressed to, to solve these problems. If you had to kind of define what, so what the end result is, what would you define as a good UX? Like what are the characteristics of uh, a product that was done with a, a great UX? It's that delight thing. It's that people come away feeling they have value. They have delight. So I don't know a way to, clearly measure that one way is to follow usage if you have any type of usage metrics usage tracking built into something again i'm mostly thinking in software this could be a service could be hardware so hardware could be runtime what's the average runtime is it going up we we, we upgraded it's the old version versus the new version do we see better runtime or anything you can embed in software that's going to show those types of things obviously uh, customer service or feedback channels. So if you go to any e-commerce site, they all have reviews. The reviews tell you a lot of feedback, especially from people you otherwise wouldn't reach. Customer service channels get a lot of feedback. When I think of developing a product, 
you, you do this whole thing. Uh, so I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself. I talked about what does the user need? One of the ways I measure that is talking to salespeople. So if, if it's a, an e-commerce site where people are on their own, you don't have that. But if it's, say, B2B or B2B2C, there are salespeople that manage these accounts, and they're always talking to customers, potential customers. So they're a wealth of knowledge. So I was just thinking of this, knowing I was going to talk to you guys, that uh, I think I need to write a little article on I talked about personas. Well, why not a persona for the salesperson that you're dealing with? Bob is a 40-year-old salesperson at my company. He's uh, got two kids, a very expensive house, two car payments. He wants to make commissions to have his lifestyle. So my point is, if I give my salespeople, my persona, Bob or whoever, a product they can sell, and they're selling it and they're happy, then it also is another measure that I'm reaching my ultimate user or customer because if they can't sell it, there's something wrong. So it's a call it like a back channel to also follow. So it's a lot of different ways to get that feedback. The the hardest hardest part is you were kind of alluding to it, the two um a green product versus an existing product is the green product or really no way to do that with existing product we have this extra back channel so so it, it's it's a whole iteration process this thing is never complete and built it's build it test it deploy it feedback and then just keep going through that loop it's a spiral forever yeah that uh, iterative development in itself exactly is, is, is one of the most powerful tools that uh, we have in the industry I mean, I just uh, saw a documentary that one of uh, Valve's, who's a giant by any measure, their secret weapon is having one week iterations, dedicating Friday to gathering feedback and mm -hmm. then uh, integrating and implementing the results of that feedback during the next week. And then they do it all over again, over and over and over until it is as good as it can be. And on that note, I was wondering, what what is the typical cycle you see in UX development? Personally, I feel like it could be a bit quicker uh, in my experience. But I'm wondering what, how you feel. Yeah, about so I'm also going to put in another little plug for one of my concepts. I call it Inno Products, Innovation, Product Management, and UX. In a, in a typical company, these things are siloed. Everyone does have their role. I'm not saying people should do other people's roles, but I think all roles should have a, a level of understanding of all these aspects. It's not like, all right, you UX people go do this, give it back to me, the product manager, and I'll deal with it. A really good UX person understands what the product manager is going to want or trying to achieve because they have a lot of communication. So... Inno products is again mindset more than a, a set of specific steps or instructions, but even engineers, POs, PMs, UX researchers, UX designers, if everyone has a level of understanding of the other roles, what they need, uh, it's able to flow a lot better. So you were asking about the, the iterative process and how to speed that up. I, I think, first of all, having a better understanding instead of I did my part, hand it off, wait for you to get back to me. Uh, 
the idea of you said basically one week churns just probably pretty tough to do unless they're small iterations um but the idea of that you definitely need that internal communication to and and a little bit graying the lines and crossing over like yeah, i know you're the the pm but here's what i did because i know the goal you're trying to achieve rather than like here is my research you figure out what the results mean to you it's like yeah i can throw away this piece of the research because i know that's not where we're trying to take the product or as the pm i'm, I'm saying all right i need you to get this feedback from me whether it's the ux people the sales people as i said uh giving them something to focus on rather than oh, just let me know what you hear uh, i need to know about this whatever this is so that i can focus our work and turn it faster because if you get too much feedback now you have to sort through that figure and what happens is prioritization you build a roadmap of what you want to build as a pm and then things come at you to try and change your roadmap there's bumps in the road technical bumps things happen servers down ceo comes in demanding something so managing the the timing is very important so that's focus and that's why i talk about this in our products not to come up with cool words but to to just make the point that everyone has to have a good understanding and willingness to step over their their, their line a little bit step out of their lane i think that's great advice in general is to become familiar with uh, different actors yeah well, it's easy to say I'm this, but I'm this, but I I can look around. Well, like I, I code, I, I don't care how it looks, right? That, that's a standard one. <laughs> when you start a UX process, how many people are you going to interview, and how how long or how deep do you want to go in the interviews? And I mean, if you look at if you're developing, say, a product, uh, you know, the stakeholders in the product can be you know, like you said, salespeople and marketing people and the operations people in the back end of the company. And then you have the external people, which are potential customers or resellers or wholesale. I mean, you could build a matrix of interviews where you could be interviewing for months or year, right? How do you, how as a UX person, do you kind of say to yourself or lay out a UX strategy where, the interview process gets everything you need, but at the same time, you don't spend the entire time doing interviews. Yeah. So, and that goes on the testing side too. If you're going to have people test, how many do you need to test to get feedback? So there's some different schools of thought on that. And I can't believe I'm absolutely drawing a blank on the, the most, most well-known uh, UX people that talk about interviews and testing on the testing side usually 50 is your max and you can set that up through i wouldn't say max but reasonable max that you can go to uh, you can set that up often through testing services so that makes it easy to manage the interview side as you said i bet there's tools out there i, I you really need face-to-face -face dialogue so short of using a recording tool a transcription tool I don't know if there's a shortcut around that. So yeah, you can get bogged down. I don't have a good rule of thumb to go by there. I, I think it's it's partly who you're talking to, how much you feel you're getting out of them. So I, I think this is this 
art over science, the heuristic side, but I'm sure you can talk to a lot of people going to say, oh, you absolutely need 11 people or it's 50 people or it's five people. So I'm still not thinking of, after the podcast, I'll think of it, but the, the <laughs> UX firm I'm talking about, they, they talk about as little as five people and they probably know much more than me, but it's just five never feels right to get a, a sense to me. But there's statistics behind that. So they, they again, they know more than me, but. I agree with you. It's kind of the art, right? After you've done a, a bunch of UX products, you kind of know, or I think you would know, you know, okay, I, for this type of product, I, I don't need, I, I need 15 interviews. And for this type of product, maybe I need a hundred interviews, right? Uh, I, I think that's kind of where part of the art is a little bit of trying to know what that is. On the other hand, as Botan brought up, you know, if you're going to do so many interviews, it takes six months to, to do that side of it. That may not fit or be reasonable in the business plan or business model. On the other hand, if you do two interviews, you may not get enough data to, to mean anything. Yeah, and that's the art part. I, I think, what are you building? How big a change is it if it's an existing thing? Uh, so a long time ago, I was building an artificial assistant. Siri existed. Viv was in development, which is now Samsung Bixby. Alexa was not known, at least publicly at that point. So you could talk to people, and we didn't have the level of AI that we have today. The NLU was not there at all. Watson was dominant at that time. And this is, uh, I can't think, but talking no more than eight years ago. So this is not ancient history. But to go out and talk to people, most people, if you just picked a person, hey, what do you think if something could do this? Yeah, sure, I'd like that. But no one's thinking of it deep enough because they had no context of technology at the time. And now we've gone the other way where the AI is just captivating everything. And I hear the term the AI, like it's this brain that's engulfed the, the globe. Yeah. So, yeah, something like that would be very hard. You could talk to a lot of people and not necessarily get much feedback. And you could go on and on asking and they'll probably say all positive, wonderful dream things. But what are they really going to do? Because at that time it was still going to be useful, but limited. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you don't mind, I, I would like to circle back to the interviews for just a quick question. Mm -hmm. Like if I do one interview, but there are a thousand participants, does it count as one interview in the five interview rule? Kind of like a focus group or... Uh... Yeah, I, I am not a focus group fan myself because a long time ago, a college student, hey, you can make some money in a focus group. Oh, 50 bucks. Yeah, I'm there. All right, what do you want me to answer? Where's my check? So I feel there's like a group think that comes on in these focus groups. Maybe maybe I'm just some greedy college kid or, or I was. There's that aspect, but people just get together and, oh, I saw a, a really good video about a month or so ago. It had nothing to do with focus groups. But it was about psychology and it was a, a test and some known thing I don't know the name of. And they, they had a fake proctor like five people. The fifth one was the subject they were checking or testing or whatever the proper psychological word would be. The four were actors. And all right, what's the question? Answer this question. They would all get it right. Do it a second time. Third time, they would all get it wrong. And then you see this subject and their face 
be like a little quizzical and then they, they know that's the wrong answer but they say it anyway so they're being drawn into this to be part of the crowd so that's why i don't like focus groups i think very i mean i'm sorry uh peer pressure is just uh yes a force of nature <laughs> yeah so you could talk to a, a client maybe have three people from the client together there's some risk of that i but i would not want six eight ten people in a room because i think that's going to happen when you go through the interview process the the ux process it's better to do the ux process before any product development is being done right uh, because part of the UX process is getting to understand what the product should be. To that note, when you go through a UX process, what is the deliverable? Like, what are you trying to deliver for the next step of the process? And I have a feeling that varies, but I thought I'd ask you, what do, what do you have in your mind is what is the deliverable of a UX process? It definitely varies. So it could be a strategy. You're developing a UX strategy. It could be the, the it could be a definition of the experience, literally of, of things. So we're going to have three buttons. I'm not talking about the UI design. There's always this conflagration between UX, UI. I see UX slash UI or UI slash UX. Like, no, the UI is a portion of UX. And we can get into CX versus UX, and I'll say UX is almost CX, but there is a little difference, but practically speaking, we'll call them the same. Um, but so I'm just saying there's three buttons, and it gets into sort of the more in information architecture side of it than the, the definition of the UI type of thing. Again, software, this could be a dishwasher, and there's three controls or whatever kind of thing. Um, generally, though, no matter what you do, the, as a UX researcher or designer, the product manager makes the final decision. So there could be some reason like, no, we can't do the three button. And I'm thinking of the dishwasher. We can't do the three button thing because our tooling is set up to do four buttons. It's going to cost us $800,000 to change the tooling. So that's great, but we're still going with four buttons. So it's still at the recommendation level in that case. So it could be the strategy could be the UX recommendation, could be a, a roadmap, so to speak, or blueprint uh, could lead to wireframes for the UI designer. This, again, low feature fidelity. Set list, uh, yes. Feature and, set list yeah, anything really? like that. So I, I don't want to create hierarchies implying someone's more important or higher, but generally how it goes, the, the UX researcher presents and they're presenting to a decision maker, typically the product manager, doesn't mean they have any less value or worth, but that's the structure, how things work. You have to have someone that, that owns the product. I just talked to someone recently. We both agreed. I think the names are backwards, PM and PO. That should have been flipped. The, the product owner should be the final decision maker. It's not how it is. We're not going to change that now. That That's set. But anyway, the, the PM is the person that says, yes, we're doing this. No, we're not doing that. We're doing it when. So the best UX people, uh, Johnny Ivey at, at Apple, probably had more power than any other UX person's going to have, but technically didn't make the final decision. I, I don't know who the product people were he worked with and if they would override his decision. That's a very unique case. But 
in general, these are recommendations and they have different levels and different areas they can go. And it could be something simple where it can be handed off. So again, this inner product thing, it's relationship. If, if I'm trusting you, you're trusting me and I, you're doing this. And all right, if you, if you tell me to do it, I know it's good. I'm just going to do it. So I, I know I'm giving you guys a lot of gray area here. I, I just, there's other people who are very rigid about things. I yeah. don't see it that way. Yeah. It, it seems to me that the, and this is something people forget about product owners. Like I, I've actually like had clients that they didn't have a product owner or they didn't know who the product owner was. And the UX person is basically talking to everybody, figuring out, you know, what it is that they need to make to have the best product. Uh, and then at some point the product owner needs to say, yes, this is what we're going to make. Right. And then you can hand all that stuff off to developers or the engineers or whoever, and they can actually go make a product because they know what they have to make, right? Um, but I, I think that that process of the product owner, you know, somebody's got to make the decision and, and that's really where it comes in. Yeah, well, really the PM, if you have both, it's the PM making that decision. If the PO is managing the team more, that's why I say the titles are, are really reversed, but that's what they are. Yeah, it's the, the PM in the end is the one who who owns it. And the thing I always say, when the product succeeds, the team succeeds. When the product fails, it's the PM because they are the decision maker. So when when I've worked as PM, that's the the responsibility I'm willing to take. And that motivates me. Let's get this right because, yeah, all the fingers are going to point. Who screwed it up? It was Ken. He's the one who said to do that. Ken, Ken, Ken. So, okay, let's. Let's make sure Ken looks good here and think this through, get it right. So, yeah, it has to be someone like that. And I've been in situations where the leadership above me still says, no, do this. And I, okay, it's going to fail, but I can't override them. So, uh, again, why there's these gray areas everywhere. And I've never been a place that has, uh, and I've been at very large companies, never had a place where there is a, Engineering managers, uh, scrum master, BA, PO, PM, uh, UX lead, UX designer, UX researcher. There's always missing roles. So there's gaps that someone's got to fill in. What about AI, right? Uh, AI may be an option for filling some of those roles. I mean, some development projects or companies don't have the ability to have a full staff that is needed to do a proper UX. What do you think about AI and what do you think about AI having a role in UX development? Uh, so regarding AI, I mean, on the one hand, I love it. It's in my name. Uh, on the other hand, I, I hate the term because it's so broad. So if I told you I went to a great restaurant last night, you say, oh, what'd you eat? Food. That's like AI. It's food. Well, it's not very descriptive. I have to right. tell you. That's so true. That's so true. Everyone just says, oh, it's AI. It's like, yeah. Okay. Is it what is like that? a deep learning model? Is it like right. a large language model? Is it generative? Is it deductive? What yes. Is it? <laughs> yeah. So that's why I don't like the term. But there's probably possibilities. I don't know of anything now that's overly helpful. I, I just put a post out on LinkedIn. I saw this thing. Someone used ChatGPT as a cheat on a job interview. So if you're interviewing me, ask me some question. Tell me about 
and up, up on the right, it's it's hearing, it's going speech to text, posting it out to chat. GPT is coming back, and I'm supposed to be talking to you, saying uh, whatever it tells me. I mean, that does the the best way to blow a job interview is to count on that. So, uh, right now, I don't know if there's too much. It can generate questions for you to ask, and it could be a starting point. I would definitely review those questions. And last night I was playing with Bard. I got a message from Google. It says, try Bard. So, okay. And I asked Bard a question it couldn't answer. I said, well, something to the effect of how are you making these decisions? Are you, aren't you just reviewing what humans wrote? Yes. I'm just, uh, I don't know, had better verbiage. I should have saved it. I am summarizing what humans wrote and the opinions are theirs. So that's the thing to remember here. If you're asking these public models today, it's it's doing a beautiful job of writing what's out there. So you're getting sort of generic answers, even though you can pin them down and, and refine them, refine uh, what what you're getting back from the prompts you give it. Still have to review it. So it could be a great starting point. Uh, I think maybe people that are, are new to that can start that way. If you've done this a lot, you should have some pretty good idea if you know your product or your company or your product line and the customer you're going after, again, having that persona defined what, uh, what it is you want to build, those types of things. You should be able to generate your own questions, same way you should be able to answer questions on an interview or you, even if you faked it, you're going to be out of that job pretty quick. Uh, so I think there's some possibilities there right now with what's out there. I'm not sure if there's too much more. I, I saw this, I looked at a few articles that people, like there's a thing, right? Write, write articles or make videos about chat GPT because it'll get views. <laughs> and it was, it was how you can, I saw three or four articles on how you can use chat GPT. And, and I, I just like to point out that is just one LLM model, LLM model it's getting the attention but there's lots of others and use it to generate the the fill text so if you do a design everyone uses lorem ipsum so you could tell it oh i need filler text about this and get some detailed response i happen to think that's a horrible idea because if someone reviewing the layouts is lorem ipsum it's out of their mind if it sounds like company text they're going to waste their time. Like, oh, where'd you get this text? Who approved this? That's wrong. You're going to just totally derail the process. So I, I disagree with some of these ideas that are just being generated to just say, oh, we have to use this tool. It's still very nascent, early days. So I think they will grow. The So right now, the best I can think of is using it to start questions maybe for interviewing you can also use it another thing i guess would be to summarize results so if you want to get a quick summary uh like maybe i'm interviewing you guys getting feedback we're recording this i run it through my text-to-speech i get a transcript and then pass those transcripts to one of these language models and say give me a summary tell me that uh, you know of this and who knows any x we, we never agreed what that number is but some number of other interviews tell me the 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 most liked things the most needed things so yeah it could be great to get that once i got that summary i'd review it and say oh they they hate our thing i'd want to then go back and hear that firsthand not just trust my 
LLM summary, but it could save a lot of time getting me to a point, at least thinking like it sounds like they hate this and they want this. So those types of things right now, I think could be useful. Yeah, that's that's fair. Uh, personally, I feel like the the most uh, resource and time intensive part of using LLMs is actually setting them up to produce the results that mm -hmm. you're looking for, especially in a format you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully in that scenario, though, if you spend that time, work out the prompts for this we'll call product iteration, and we're doing another iteration down the road, that won't change too much. Maybe some specifics, but yeah, that's why there's so much hype and they're great tools. I, I'm amazed at how well they write. I'm not always uh, as happy with their factuality, but they're pretty good still. But uh, yeah, it's it's not refined yet. It's got a ways to go. That's why the AI, like where is the AI? Show it to me. Well, in in UX and related to UI, probably one of the bigger or probably the, the job that in the future is going to be fairly required is, you know, integrate chat GPT or any other kind of chat bot into a website, a mobile app, some product. Is there rules or things that you need to kind of do from a UX perspective for developing that or, or making it so that the chatbot actually functions correctly or it works within a UX structure? Well, funny you should ask that question. I just talked to uh, an engineer friend this morning. We're, we're installing chatbot on my website. It's powered by GTP three turbo right now it's limited to three topics my three topics of innovation product management and ux if you ask it how do you feed a cat it's going to say sorry i can't help you with that so it's a proof of concept it'll say things its name is you know same as the innovation and i'm not guaranteeing what it's going to say if you have if it tells you something it'll be up and running soon and you question it then you can ask this bot to contact me. There'll be no more contact form on my site. You'll ask, you know, to contact me and she, it, whatever you want to call it, uh, will, will do the work and contact me. So if Inno tells whomever something that's incorrect, then I'll see what Inno has to say and see if Inno is right or wrong in my opinion. Again, there's a lot of gray area to this stuff. But so in thinking this out, the prompts that are, are built in to control Inno, what seems to be this UI of Inno. And uh, I don't even know if I was going to reveal what's behind it. So now you guys got the scoop. I mean, <laughs> you guys know. I have to switch to bar just so. No. Uh, it's also built so we could plug one in and take another out. So maybe I will change that over time. But so part of it was engineering the prompts to get back what we want, which is not the hardest thing. Part of it is, well, what's the right temperature? We just did a test yesterday, turning up the temperature uh, because there's the detection of, oh, just send a message to Ken. So we can be very literal. You have to say these words, and that's the way NLU was not very long ago. Uh, eight, 10 years ago, it's very hard to train. Again, when I was at the bank, I want to transfer money. That could be said. 20 different ways or so. It has to understand every one of them and then all the steps in transferring the money each time it has to be trained on every little 
<clears throat> every little aspect of from to what amount when all those things what what vehicle and like zell or, or wire or, or whatever it is so now these things are pretty good but if you change the uh, temperature how inventive it is in understanding and, and responding so the thing i talked about uh, i think i said to you how do you feed a cat we turned up the temperature on the like i don't understand that and it was given a true answer that it didn't understand but in a way that was not acceptable to me it was and it was kind of saying goodbye well i can't help it with that so long like whoa, whoa, we don't want to stop the conversation because someone asked a question possibly testing to see what you know does so don't say that so so uh, this is a long-winded answer i know but it's there's some tweaking of on the prompt side and the control of of the what you're feeding and what you're getting back in terms of ux in terms of the content we're talking about generative stuff here we cannot fully control the content especially in a, a conversation that you don't know where it's going to go which is has been the problem of nlu conversational uis forever because of what i just said when i was at the bank my conversational designer was asked by the training team i'll give us 200 examples of each uh, utterance that's possible for each step and he was like how can i do 200 i mean you just when you get to 20 it starts getting tough you get into little nuances just to come up with something um so but you don't know where a conversation can go even if it's a legit conversation my thing is i'm always trying to break everyone's ai or nlu just because i'm testing to see how good they are it's not because i'm malicious i just want to know like hey they really figured this out this is really good or like oh this has got a lot of work needed so it's really it's really interesting because you're kind of defining the data set or the the learning experience or, or going through the process of teaching uh the the chatbot as part of ux and now that i think about it yeah it is because the user experience is literally the answers that the user is getting I also don't think businesses realize they think, oh, I'm just going to put chatbot on my website or integrate it into my mobile app or whatever. They don't realize that the, the hard work, I mean, integrating and doing the development to insert a chatbot into a website, it's not really that difficult. The difficult part is literally you got to make a data set that the thing can learn off of, right? So it gives the right answers to the right questions. And I don't think people realize uh, that how much work that is, right? Uh, and and it's a lot of work to generate those data sets. And like I said, I didn't think of it as user experience, but yeah, it's directly user experience, just that process. Yeah, and the edge cases and the breakpoints are what makes the user experience or not, because a simple question like, what hours are you open? Okay, <clears throat> not too hard. But if it starts saying, well, what hours are you open when uh, we're on, I don't know, I'm trying to come up with a good example. When I go to this location, Christmas, right? I'm sorry? I mean, you could just ask, uh, what hours are you open next Christmas or yeah. next public holiday? Right, right. So you have to start thinking of all these edge cases. Yeah, I did not even an AI thing. It's a great point. Is that a different bank? Yeah, designing that, that is exactly where google maps fails me every time 
Like I tried to look up, is this place open? And it just says, oh, it might be, might not. <laughs> yeah, or typically, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so it's all those little edge cases and things, and it's always with what gets neglected. So yeah, you can go find a bot free, 50 bucks a month. Someone can stand that up in a day or less. And yeah, we have a bot, so we're cool now. We got a bot, but and no one tests all these things. I shouldn't say no one, but typically these things aren't tested. You do some tests, like wow, we have a bot, and some bots are still probably fading away. Uh, tree structure, so decision tree, so it's a path. So you get something out of that. It's going to give the correct answers to its path, but you can't deviate from that. And most people's needs probably go beyond that path and there, there's a gap right there so now there's a problem and you, you can't get anything out of it so you just go down this path get to nowhere and i have to go seek out a way to get to a human so it just wasted your time does not make for for good ux and say like the money transfer thing if i go to a bank i log into the app i want to transfer money it really if it's something i can't do myself really does not matter to me if it's a human or bot executing i just need to transfer the money and that, that's it. So the the how cool it is and how much effort the user does not care. The user wants what they want and they want to move on. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. So those little things are UX for those reasons because when it doesn't go the way they want, they're not happy. They're not delighted. I I do I do wonder, Ken. Like uh, you already mentioned decision trees, but uh, another favorite abstraction of mine is state machines. And I feel like they they could be or maybe are an integral part of UX, but um, I would like to hear your thoughts on this. It really depends on what's being built, how. So, like, I, I would never have built a decision tree bot. I was up for this role one time as VP of something at a small bot company, and they were telling me, oh, people don't want NLU, they want decision trees. That's how we built their bot. I don't think this is going to be the role for me. So, but using a using state, um, it really depends on what you're up to, how it's going to to be built. You have a specific example in mind. I mean, uh, sure. The, we can go back to the example you mentioned before, where I would be talking to a uh, chatbot essentially, and then when it cannot help me, then we get to another state where it just puts me in a queue, or. Um, from my side, the state machine could be like navigation in an app, which I think is often neglected. <laughs> like if I go to this menu, I, I just cannot close it anymore. Like there's no X, no nothing. And right. I just have to restart, stuff like that. Yeah, so that, I wouldn't call it an edge case, but that is where the lack of testing has, has created that problem. But so my answer is always, I've always driven the NLU th- thinking part. NLU has drastically changed in the last year to two years, mostly the last year, because understanding it is the best way. Prescri- prescribing a path is always going to get to a locked door or a dead end or something. But again, people might say or want anything. As Dave was saying, the training is immense to get you there to be able to handle that. So we're kind of on the cusp of that with the the LLMs. And each week, well, this one is now trained on a bigger data set. And it's now this data set race, which presumably makes it better. 
I wonder if anyone has validated that. There's probably a certain level. As you get bigger, it may not really get better. Uh, that's my inkling. But uh, is it possible even to fully validate a uh, LLM? I would think fully, no. You just have to use your test cases and get a level of confidence. Still no different than hiring a, a customer service rep that is allowed to go off script. If they have to have scripted answers, like say in pharma, they really have to read what's on the screen. But if you have someone that you allow to at least just have bullets on the screen or just freewheel it, you really have to have trust in that they weren't drinking this morning. Yeah, I, I, you know, I feel like if uh, an LLM would handle my uh, banking transactions and whatever support for my bank, I would just uh, feel like there's uh, there's this intern who started yesterday after a huge bender, and whatever I I ask him to do, he just replies, uh, "Trust me, bro, I got this." Right, this, right. This, uh, <laughs> energy I get from LLMs. <laughs> I think one of the, the issues is, is that as people are using, quote, chat GPT, they're now going to go and when they see some kind of chat bot, they're going to think that they can kind of interact with it like they would chat GPT, right? So example, uh, they come to your website and, you know, yes, if they say, what hours are you open? That's a that's easy to put into a FAQ and teach your chat bot to do that. But what if they come to your website and they say, I have this idea for this product and it kind of is like this. How can you help me? Right. It's a very broad, ambiguous kind of question that actually was given some information, some context was given. And it's asking you, how can your company help me with this concept? That's a very broad and it's going to be really hard to make a data set. Or that can do that. But at the same time, chat GPT could get the concept. It would go to your data set. And I guess if you programmed your data set correctly, you would have enough information about your company and what you can do that it would be able to produce an answer that actually might make sense. Right? I tell theory, yes. So that there's two things to unpack there. So one, all these LLMs, LLMs are trained on public data. And that's what I was asking Bard in a way. I really wish I'd saved that. And I, I did ask it a follow-up question. So if you say that type of question, these LLMs are going to look at what every human has put out there somewhere on a website or written an article, company information, and kind of give you this detailed but generic answer that may or may not apply. So you need your own data set. The problem is very few places have sufficient data set that an LLM is going to be able to read through it and go, oh, I can really answer this. I mean, it's not even thinking, but to be able to parse all that, it can write something, but I think it's gonna be eloquently gaping. It'll have nice verbiage, but when you read the details, like, but wait a minute, kind of thing. So some very large companies, I'm thinking, I'm just making up an example, an insurance company. So they have lots and lots of data that they can train on and in terms of products. So depending on how they expose that data through their, their products and services, 
you can probably get a fairly good answer. Like, do you ensure if this happens? I think it can respond and say that because they, they have huge data stores that are very uh, limited in scope. Even they have maybe who knows how many different types of insurance, but for each insurance it is limited and it's a, like a vertical on that data. If you got to something that's much more broad, think of even a car company. If someone asked a question and it looked across all the different models of cars, be like, oh yeah, you can get the twin turbo version and, and you're looking at some uh, budget electric car. It might confuse these things. So you have to, it would have to have the mechanism to say, well, which car are we talking about? And, and sort of query back. That stuff's not there in LL, L, L, wow, I can't say it today. <laughs> GPT type of, how about that? Uh, type of models. So that's why I still say it's nascent, it's early days, but the direction and what you're talking about, yeah, it's, you definitely have to move these things of your business to your own data set to ultimately be effective about your own products and still be careful about things like the temperature, how much it, it says. I've worked in regulated industries like banking and pharma, uh, particularly pharma. I don't think they'll ever go to that because literally one or two words, one or two words can create a legal liability. So it's just not going to work there. But if you're a t-shirt company and you have a lot of data, of course, someone's going to come in there and say, hey, can you print this on a T-shirt? And better have the guardrails for that as well. Uh, but so that's where there's still a lot of growth in this. So when you get out of this hype cycle, we went through that with 3D printing, for example, and uh, AR when it first came out, which was good. But for both of those things, it was like, oh, everyone's going to have this in their home very soon. I don't know many people that, that are not yeah. geeks that have these things at all. In fact, I know no one. So this hype cycle will die down. We'll start building from what there is. It'll get better. You start to get into, again, the gaps, the edge cases, the breakpoints, and find out that these GPT LLMs don't have the ability to really do that. You still have to build other pieces. So it's not as simplified like you were saying. I'll just throw chat on the on the website and we got it. It's the data. It's the data sets. It's all of that. But it it has some potential. I agree with you that the data set is part of UX and and chatbots are going to be part of product development and integration into uh, product development. Uh, two questions, if you don't mind. Like uh, one of the things I, I feel like could be. One of the best applications for GPT likes is uh, if I'm doing support, customer support for a company that's mainly uh, text-based. I feel like there is an amazing opportunity there to take all of the trans transcripts ever, like going back 10, 20 years, train uh, the LLM on that and just, you know, have a uh, first line of support with the disclaimer that, hey, this is an AI, like press this button if you want to get connected to an operator, but it will try the best it can to help you out. I do wonder if, uh, can you be an expert on these things? You can maybe think about other industries that would be like sort of uh, a good target for early adoption of these technologies. 
Yeah, well, I agree with you. So definitely for support, definitely with a disclaimer and um, controlling its inventiveness again through things like temperature setting would be good. Uh, but that that's across any industry. If you're talking about other use cases, it could be sales, at least the initial part of the sales, particularly where there's not uh, so selling enterprise things. I don't know that any salesperson wants to be represented by a bot initially. But if you think of uh, trying to think of a good product example here, let's just say sneakers. Maybe there's a website sells. 200 type of sneakers, like one of these dedicated sneaker retailers, not necessarily the brand itself, but so they have 200 models of, of sneakers and you could get things going. Someone may get into a very deep particular question. I see you switched from polyurethane heel to uh, poly something heel. Why? Uh, I'm not even sure that a sale, human salesperson is going to know that question, but yeah, so it could be used at a certain level of sales, definitely. Right now, the, the whole change uh, in, in search right now is something I've complained about for a long time. And just a little side note, I'll, I'll make it about me, but I think it's all UX people. We have sort of this ability to question slash complain. The biggest word a UX person uses is why. You see something like, oh, why the hell is that button over there? It should be there. And you start thinking and so there's always the questioning thing is, is innate to, to UX people. I'm sure, I'll get some hate email soon, but uh, so you can use this um, like as a sales tool and try and get it to figure out uh, what people might be after, what uh, how it can answer. But again, there's still that limitation and you can't, probably use it for for things that really require understanding the customer to sell it has to be something at least initial service so uh, the salespeople that sell sneakers which i'm not maligning them but they're not going to know the motivation of why the company did this it's very unlikely unless they're really studied some hard to find data so they, they just won't have that information at, at hand. So those types of levels of things, and again, I'm, I'm not saying anything about the people involved there, but versus, uh, hey, I sell nuclear power plants. Well, no bot's going to start that conversation off. Like, hey, what kind of nuclear are you looking for? How many kilowatts do you need? I mean, there's, <laughs> that's the extreme other end. But all I'm saying is that bigger, more challenging things probably will never start, start with a uh, an AI process that's always going to be human to human. But so I, I feel like what you're saying is uh, the lower the risk, the greater yeah, the better, much better way to phrase it than I did. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> uh, right. It, it's a, a risk type thing and level of understanding. Most of the questions around the sneakers are going to be availability, size, price, shipping, those kinds of things, comfort. You can use the AI to summarize those types of things pretty well. So that I would call low risk. And, and that could be lots of categories. All right, that's great. And traditionally, I'll ask you the, <laughs> the last question. Uh -oh. It's uh, Ken, what does the future of UX look like? Oh. <laughs>
I can't predict that. I don't think technically it's going to change too much because it's still the same underlying process. Even if we automate it, even if you could have an AI that can do the research and ask the questions, we still have to do those steps to understand what we're building. We're never going to say, let's build a product and we don't need to understand who's going to buy it, who's going to use it, what's going to make them happy. The basics are the basics, just like if you want to be the best athlete in some sport, it's always the basics that coaches harp on. It's not some trick shot or something like that. So, so I don't know that the, the UX process is going to change until the point that the AI is so intelligent that it's just selling to itself or doing something for itself, then it might be a different kind of AI. But when there's humans in the loop, especially as the, the uh, end user type of thing, the process won't change, but the tools definitely will evolve. The AI will definitely infiltrate, if that's a, a good word to use here, and, and be helpful. I do agree that it's not ever going to be the, the, the only way to do it, that it's human augmented by AI. But there will be some shoving back and forth, people eliminated, and probably people brought back in when you find that, yeah, we still need people. This is this early days evolution thing. But I think that's what UX will always be. All right. Well, well, Ken, how about uh, maybe uh, you can talk a little bit about what your, what your consulting does and what you do and how people can get a hold of you if they wish to do so. Sure. So the best way to get a hold of me is KenLanier.com. I, uh, in the future, we'll have two podcast series, and one will be about AI, and one will be about product management. So I, I try to keep those two separate. I didn't want the, the Ken Lanier show. No one wants to tune into that. Maybe yeah. my mother. Uh, so there's another website, AIProductGuy.com. But right now, there's placeholders for the for the future podcast there. As far as what I do, I mean, my thing is whether I'm consulting or I, I'm working in a company, it's just to create the best products, to, to use these skills. Again, this whole Inno products thing, that's really, you changed my name to that. I, I do not fit well into any category. So I'm always that square peg. So if there's a UX need, it's a round hole. If it's a product need, it's a triangular hole. And I'm the square peg because I kind of, span all this I'll, I'll just leave it with this little thing i always say that when i was a kid kids wanted to be nurses doctors firefighters astronauts not a single kid ever said oh, i want to be a product manager so you get to these paths in unforeseen ways and it, it brings together this mix of things so so i do all that stuff happy to talk to people help them out uh, make better products create delight great well, Ken, thank you so much for chatting with us about the components of a successful UX strategy and your thoughts on integrating ChatGPT and other chatbots into the UX process and design. For our listeners, please join us in the first week of each month for another Screenbox Technology and Business Rundown podcast. Until then, may your user experience of life be graphically pleasing and intuitive. Thank you very much for taking this journey with us. Join us for our next exciting exploration of technology and business in the first week of every month. Please help us by subscribing, liking, and following us on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please let us know any subjects or topics you would like us to discuss in our next podcast.
by leaving a message for us in the comment sections or sending us a Twitter DM. Till next month, please stay happy and healthy. <laughs> <laughs>